0: Amen. I'm excited for this word today, and this morning I want to preach on the thought, the story of two sons. The story of two sons. It's found in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, and verses 11 through 32. I want you to listen to the words of St.
1: Luke. Hear the gospel of Luke chapter 15. And all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of the goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this is my son, who was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and he came to draw near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might be, ma- be merry with my friends. But as soon as the son of your, uh, this son of yours came, who, was, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that you should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost, but now is found. Thank you, Pastor Ronnie. The story of the two sons. Heavenly Father, we pray that you
0: add the blessing to the preaching of your word. Open our ears and hearts to hear it. And all the church said, Amen. Somebody once said that a mistake, a bad mistake, doesn't have to be fatal. A bad mistake doesn't have to be fatal. You know, sometimes mistakes can define you and they can limit you. But this morning I'm proposing to you that mistakes don't have to define your life, nor do they have to limit you. Mistakes can be a growing opportunity for you to achieve what God has for you. You see, you're Perception is either your passport or your prison in life. The way that you view things will either cause you to be in prison or will cause you to have a launching pad in your life. You see, the story of the prodigal son is a familiar story that all of you have probably heard before, and I'm sure you have heard many pastors or preachers preach on this subject before. And I am sure that most of you are probably better at it than I am because you've heard it for years. You've heard this story, and there's many different ways to preach this story and many good applications of this story. It's all good, and it's all wonderful. I have certainly heard some great sermons on the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. Basically, the story is about how a father loves his son so much That he receives his son back in spite of his mistakes. That's the gist of the story. And that's a wonderful story. It's wonderful because it brings great encouragement to us. And traditionally, that's how we have interpreted the story. There is a father who loves us so much that he receives us back in spite of our mistakes and our failures. And not only does he receive us back, but he restores us back to life. That's how we traditionally have interpreted it. And there's nothing wrong with that. But this morning, I want to spin the text, and I want to look at the text from a different angle. I believe there is more information in this story than the traditional way of just saying the Father loves us and receives us back. Now that is wonderful, and that is good. I'm glad we have a Heavenly Father that receives us back and restores us back to life. There's nothing wrong with that interpretation. It's a wonderful interpretation. But I like to take this story and dig a little deeper. And from the narrative, I want to bring out some things that maybe you have not heard of before. And I want to look at this from a different angle. First of all, I want to say this before we get into the story, that it is a great mistake for us to think that the story is about one son. The story is not about one son. The story is about two sons. There is an older son, and then there is a younger son. And it is a story that you can contrast and compare the two sons. I believe that the writer who is Luke wants us to do that. He wants us to compare and contrast the two sons, the older son and the younger son. Now, if you look closely, I believe that you can see this, that Jesus is telling this parable. But in the context, Jesus is eating with sinners. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 15. The Bible says that the tax collectors and sinners drew near to hear him. But the Bible says in verse number 2, The Bible says the Pharisees and the scribes, these religious people, they complain that Jesus was eating with sinners. Now let me just give you the backdrop here. Jesus, a holy man, is eating with a bunch of sinners, and the righteous people, quote unquote, the moral people, the Pharisees and religious people, they're the moral people, they were having a problem with it. They were having a problem that Jesus is now eating with sinners and tax collectors. So do you know what Jesus did? Jesus got on their level, and Jesus told a story. and the story is the, prodigal of the, the story is the prodigal of these two sons. And Jesus is trying to hammer home a point. He's trying to tell the Pharisees and religious leaders he's trying to tell them a point. And I want you to see if you can get the point this morning. I want you to see if you can understand what Jesus is trying to tell these religious people. These religious people were were upset. They were troubled. They were vexed that Jesus would eat with such sinners. Certainly a holy man, a righteous man, wouldn't stoop that low to eat with sinners. But Jesus tells a story, and Jesus is giving them a point, and I want you to see that point this morning. Let me recap the story to you. Pastor Ronnie did a wonderful job in reading the story. I did that this morning because it helps break up the sermon this morning to have a different voice. Uh, I want you to recap the story. The story is simple. There is a father who has two sons. Everybody shout two sons. The Bible says the younger son went to his father and said, Father, Give me my inheritance. What belongs to me, give it to me. And the Bible says the father gave it to him. The younger son then took his money, his inheritance, and went to a far country and lived it up. He slept with prostitutes. He drank. He, he caroused around. He did whatever he wanted to do. He was living it up. He was living that prodigal life. But the Bible says he came to himself, said, I shouldn't be living this way. I should go back to my father. And the Bible says the the younger brother, the younger son, went back to his father. The father received him with open arms, even kissed him, gave him a robe, gave him a ring, had a great feast in his honor. And the Bible says the oldest son, the other brother, got an attitude, and said, Daddy, why are you throwing a party for this son of yours who took your money and went to a far country and lived a life that I know you wouldn't be pleased of, and yet you are having an expensive dinner in his celebration? It don't make sense, Dad. That's the story. And I want us to look at this story this morning. Before I give you the three points that I want you to remember from this story, I want to give you some important thoughts about this story. There are some things about this story that I must tell you before I tell you the three points I have about the story. I'm going to give you three points, but before I give you these three points, I want to share some background and some interesting information that I have discovered that I think that you need to know before I tell you the three points. The very first thing I want you to see very quickly, I'm going to run through them very quickly before I get to the three points. I want you to see that in the Jewish world, in the context in which Jesus was living, it was very common for a father or for parents to give an inheritance to their children. And the protocol was that you gave your oldest child, the oldest son, a double portion. And so, and the rest of the inheritance could be divided between the children. Well, in this case, there is two sons. In this case the younger son got one-third of the inheritance, while the oldest son would get two-thirds of the inheritance. Because he's the oldest, he would get more. But in this story, the younger son wanted what belonged to him right now. What you also got to see is that when the younger son came to the father and said, Father, give me my inheritance, he basically was saying this, I wish you were dead. Because In the Jewish mindset and culture, an inheritance wasn't given to you until after the father had passed away. You didn't have a right to the inheritance while he was living. It is when he died, the inheritance went to you. And in this story, the younger son came to the father and said, I want my inheritance now. So basically, the younger son is saying, I wish you were dead. Give it to me now. In other words, my friends, this is the attitude of the younger son. I want your stuff, but I don't want you. I want your stuff, but I don't want you. And how many times do we have that mentality in the church world? God, I want what you can do for me, but I don't want you. And the younger son had that attitude. I want your stuff, Dad, but I don't want you. And I pray that that could never be labeled, for. uh, I, I pray that could never be said of us this morning, that we're just after God's stuff instead of after God himself. And that's exactly what happened here. The younger son wanted his stuff now. In other words, he wanted the stuff and he didn't want dad. He wanted his stuff, but he didn't want the father. Verse number 12, look at it. In Luke chapter 15, verse 12, what did the father do? The Bible says in verse number 12, the father gave it to him. Now that's interesting. Do you know why that's interesting? Because a Middle Eastern father would have never done that. Do you know what a Middle Eastern father would have done? A Middle Eastern father would have raised his voice. He would have drove his son out of the house and probably used a few choice words at that. He would have raised his voice and drove his father out because in the Middle Eastern culture, honor was everything. you had to honor your parents and when you dishonored your parents, you dishonored the community and you dishonored your mother and you dishonored your siblings and so therefore, the father, who is the patriarch who is the leader of the family, was felt dishonored and so no father would have did that but yet in this story, this father gave it to his son. In other words, the father maintained his love even though the father felt rejected. Boy, that is so much truth in that, folks. The father maintained his love even when he felt rejected. And my friends, can you maintain your love for your brother and your sister even when you felt rejected by them? In the American culture, do you know what we do? If we feel rejected by somebody, we want to retaliate against them. We want to get on Facebook, and we want to tell everybody how bad they are and what they've done to us. We want to make sure they hurt just as bad as we hurt. We want to retaliate against people. But in this story, the father does not retaliate against his son. The father gave it to his son, and the father gave it to him out of his rejected love. Can I hear an amen? He maintained his love even though he felt rejected. And my friends, can you maintain your love for people even when you feel rejected? Even when you don't feel like your voice is heard, even when you don't feel like you're visible, even when you don't feel like you're important to somebody, can you maintain your love for them and not retaliate against them because you feel rejected? And here the father maintained his love for his son even though he felt rejected. Now, this is important because the inheritance usually had to deal with money, it had to deal with livelihood, cattle, and also it also had to deal with land. And so a person's land represented their identity. And so for somebody to give their land away was to give a part of their life away. Look at it. The Bible says in verse 18 and 19, excuse, yeah, the, uh, verse number 12, the Bible says in verse number 12, the Father gave his livelihood away. He gave his livelihood away. In other words, he gave a part of his life away. I think that's what the Greek says. He gave a part of his life. In other words, it was a big deal to give your inheritance away, especially when you were alive. Verse number 12. The Bible says in verse number 18 and verse number 19. I want you to look at it. Verse 18 and 19. Now the son comes to his senses. The younger son come to his senses, obviously. He spent everything he had. He, he's living in a state of sin. He's living in a state of wastefulness. And the Bible says in verse number 18, the younger son says, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back to my father. There's no reason that I should stay here. I've sinned against him, and I've sinned against heaven. Verse number 19, the Bible says, he says, I'm no longer to be called your son. He says, I'm going to go back to my father and tell my father, make me one of your hired servants. Now my friends listen to pastor here. In the Jewish culture when somebody sinned in the community or sinned against their parents no, a sorry wasn't good enough. You know, in American culture we're like this, I'm sorry. You know, that's not an apology. An apology is, is you admit that you were wrong, and then you admit why you were wrong, and then you admit how it hurt the person. That's a true apology, not rolling your eyes and saying, I'm sorry. And in the Jewish culture, that wasn't a sorry. Sorry wasn't good enough. In the Jewish culture, you had to not only confess that you've done wrong and confess how it hurt the person, but number two, you also had to make restitution for what you did wrong. And that is why Zacchaeus, when he was up on the tree, the sycamore tree, the Bible says Jesus saw Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus became excited, and Jesus said, today salvation's coming to your house. And the Bible says Zacchaeus said, Lord... Whatever I've done, I will repay fourfold for what I've done. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He understood that in the Jewish culture, a sorry wasn't good enough that you had to do some sort of restitution for your sin. And that's what the younger son is saying. The younger son is saying, listen, I'm no, wor- I'm no longer worthy to be, uh, be your son. I know I've messed up. I know I've taken your stuff. I know that I am not worthy to be your son anymore, but I have a plan. And the plan is, if you let me come home, please, Dad, let me come home. If you will let me come home, I will work for you as a hired servant so I could pay back what I did wrong. The younger son had a plan of restitution. The younger son is thinking a sorry is not going to cut it. I can't just walk in my daddy's house and say, Daddy, I'm sorry. Sorry for what I did. That doesn't cut it. Not in that culture. Not in that culture. But you see, the reason why this story is so powerful is that the younger son had a plan to make things right. The younger son had a plan to rest, to make restitution for his sin. But the Bible says in verse number 20, listen to what happens here. Now here is the younger son. He comes to his senses. He has a plan. He has restitution. He's going to go to his daddy and says, listen, I can make it up. I, can, I know sorry is not good enough. I've sinned. He did confess it. I'm sin- he confessed it, number one. He understood it, hurt his daddy. And number two, he's going to make restitution for it. That's the process of true forgiveness here. And now the son has a plan, and it goes to his daddy in verse number 20. And he arose and came to his father. He's thinking, i got a plan. I'm going I'm to be one of his hired servants. I'm going to pay it back. And when he was still a great far away, his father saw him. His father had compassion. His father ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, that's interesting to me because... Here in this Jewish mindset, Jewish culture, the father never stopped and said, Son, I accept your plea deal. I accept you can come back home, and you're, you need to start working in the morning at 7 a.m., and I got some work clothes in the back. You need to put it on, and, and, and you need to work from 7 to 7. I, I, you need to work these hours, and then you need to work six months to pay me back for what you took. The father never said that. In other words, the father never even acknowledged the plan of restitution. Not one time did the father acknowledge the plan of restitution. In other words, verse 20, the Bible says the father ran. And what did the father do? He kissed him. He had compassion on him. He fell on his neck. In other words, I'm about to shout up in the air. You know what the father is saying? The father is saying, son, you don't have to prove yourself to me anymore. You don't have to prove your heart to me anymore. In matter of fact, throw your plan away. I accept you for who you are. And that's what God does. God accepts us for who we are even when we don't have a plan of restitution. And restitution doesn't work all the time. I'm not saying it's a bad deal. I'm not saying it's not, a, uh, uh, it's not a good thing. But I am saying this, but how do you know you've done enough to repay the debt? How do you know you've done enough to pay the debt? And here the father loved the son. And you know what the father did? The father said, I accept you for who you are. I, I, I'm going to bring you back as one of my sons. Hallelujah. Is there anybody in the church you can wave your hand and say, thank God, thank God, thank God. We have a father who loves us so much that he runs to us and rips our plan away and throws it away and kisses us and put his robes on us and says, I accept you even in your sin. Now, the Bible says there was another brother because the story is about two brothers. The Bible says in verse number 29 that the oldest brother got an attitude. And notice what the older brother did. So he answered his father. This is the other brother. The other brother said, Lord, Dad, I've been with you all these years and I've never transgressed your commandments at any time. And yet you gave me a young goat. In other words... The brother is saying, you never gave me a calf, you gave me a goat. You gave my brother a calf, and he sinned against you, and you've you've given me a goat. You've never had a party for me and my friends. Verse number 30, but as soon as a son of yours, he didn't call him his brother, soon as a son of yours, see his attitude, this son of yours devoured your livelihood with harlot's You decide to uh, kill a fatted calf. Now, why a fatted calf here? Because in the context of Middle Eastern life, you didn't have meat every day. You didn't eat meat. You know, like me, I eat chicken almost every day. I don't know how I would have survived 2,000 years ago. Come on, somebody. But back then, you didn't have meat every day, all right? And so especially a calf, a calf was something expensive, and you had it as special occasions. You didn't have meat every day. So when you did have meat, it was a celebration when you had meat. It was either a wedding. It was, it was, it was either, uh, a, you know, whatever, a celebration, something special they would have meat for. But not just an everyday occasion when your son would come home after he spent all your livelihood. That doesn't make sense. And I want you to see the son's attitude here. The son is saying, you never killed a fatted calf for me. In other words, he is saying, how dare you, dad, spend your money on a son that has already devoured most of your inheritance and you're going to spend more money on him? Isn't that the attitude that we have in Christianity? You've had too many chances. How dare God give you another chance? How dare God can love you more? You've already been forgiven of that. You've already went to the altar of that. But aren't you glad and thankful that God can spend his wealth and his grace on whoever he wants to and however much he wants to? Look at at verse number 29. Look at the oldest brother's attitude. He said, so he answered his father and said, look. That's what the word is, Look.'" Look, Father, look, Father, these many years I've been serving you. Now, Christ's point, look at this. I've never seen this before, and maybe you have, but I haven't. Look at verse 29. The, the, old, the younger brother's or the oldest brother's attitude was, look. That is a form of disrespect to his father. You don't look at your dad and say, look, Dad. That's dishonoring, you know. It's very dishonoring to say, look, to you, to one of your parents he didn't address him as father he didn't address him now in middle eastern culture titles were everything you addressed your father to the appropriate title you addressed your mother the appropriate title the religious leaders had appropriate titles because titles whether whatever you think about it titles defined boundaries I'm your pastor. I'm not your mother. My title is a pastor. It defines boundaries in life. Can I hear an amen? And so that's why titles were established, because titles give boundaries. You're a husband and you're a wife. The title defines who you are. And so here is a, here is, here is a little whippersnapper saying, look, dad, But I want you to look at the dad's response. The dad's response in verse 31, look how he responded to his son. And he said to him, son. What did the oldest brother say? Look, dad. But the father said, son. Look, dad, attitude. But the father in gentleness and compassion said, son. He responded to his son, not in the same manner that he received. That is an example to most of us because when we feel like we've been disrespected by people, we want to give them a piece of our mind. But here the father answered gently and said, Son, he responded the right way. As we continue to look at this story very quickly, I want to give you three points. The last ten minutes that I have, I want to give you three points that I have found in this story that I think is beneficial to your life and you can apply it to your life. There are three things I don't want you to forget. I already told you some important things about this story. Now I want to tell you three important, three important things that Jesus def- redefines. Jesus redefines three things in this story. Number one, Jesus redefines God. God. Jesus redefines God in this story. How do I know? Because over and over in Jesus's ministry, Jesus refers to God as Father. I do believe, if I understand this correctly, that all throughout the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus always referred to God as his Father except for one time. Because Jesus's relationship with God was the type of a Father. Jesus calls God his Father. And in this story, Jesus is trying to demonstrate that my father is different than your father. My father is different from the Middle Eastern fathers because most people in the Middle East thought of their father as patriarchal. They thought of their father as hard and cold. They thought of their father as a taskmaster. When you think of the word dad or when you think of the word father, some of you think the same way. Some of you have not had good relationships with your father, so therefore you have a hard time connecting with God because you think God is the same way that your dad was. And Jesus here is trying to redefine the definition of father. He's trying to redefine what God is. He is saying to this audience, audience that my God, who is my father, is much different than your father. Your father could be hard. Your father could be uncompassionate. Your father may drive you out of the house. Your father may do this and do that, but my father is different, and I want to introduce you to the greatest father in the world. And this is my father. He redefines the picture of what a father is. Jesus is saying, my father is not like that. My father's different. I'm sure those who heard the story were scratching their head because the father gave the inheritance to the youngest son. He never drove him out. He never raised his voice. He responded correctly to the son because Jesus is saying, I am trying to redefine your definition of what you think my God is like. Number two, Jesus redefines sin. I want you to think about traditionally what you think about sin. I want you to think about what sin is. I want you to listen very closely to me because I want to throw a truth bomb at you, okay? So I want you to very listen, open up your ears and listen to this. Traditionally, we think that sin is the younger brother. Because what did the younger brother do? The younger brother was very self-indulgent, wasn't he? The younger brother took his father's inheritance. The younger brother went to a far country. And the younger brother spent everything the father gave him. And the younger brother lived in riotous living. He slept with prostitutes. He spent the money. He self-indulged, self-gratification. It was all about himself. And that, my friends, is what you think about sin. When you think about sin, you're like, amen, pastor. That is what sin is. Sin is the younger brother. When people are in sin, they are self-indulgent. When people are in sin, they spend things. They, They spend everything they have. It's all on themselves. They spend in wasteful living. They're selfish and self-absorbed. It's about themselves. And my friends, I would agree with you. That is sin. But sometimes we have read this story so much that we forget the other details of the story. Yes, that could be sin. But do you notice what Jesus is trying to do here? Jesus, listen to church, Jesus is saying, remember at the beginning of the sermon I told you that Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and sinners or tax collectors? So there were two groups of people at the beginning of the story. Jesus is addressing Pharisees. Now, what is a Pharisee? They're religious, moral people, all right? Let's, Let's think of them as clergy, all right? Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. They're smart, they're moral, they're religious, they fast, they pray. And then you had the other people, sinners and tax collectors. Their tax collectors steal from people, sinners, you know, they, they, they commit all types of immorality. They all lump together. And at the beginning of the story, remember Luke 15, verse 1 and 2, Jesus is telling the story to Pharisees and sinners. In other words, Jesus is saying the Pharisees represent the oldest brother. And the sinners, the tax collectors, represent the youngest brother. The youngest brother spent his father's inheritance. And so Jesus is saying that's probably the sinners and tax collectors. The oldest brother who was good. As a matter of fact, the oldest brother said, I have never transgressed against your law, and Jesus never, well, the father never argued with him. The father never said, well, this is your list of sins. No, obviously the the oldest brother was probably a very good brother because the father never argued with him when the, the oldest brother said, father, I have done everything you wanted me to do. I've never transgressed against your law. I've done everything, and now you're giving, you've just given me a young goat, and you gave my brother a, a, a fatted calf. The father never argued with him. So obviously, the oldest brother was a very good brother. He was very moral. He was a person of character and integrity. He was very good. And Jesus is saying the oldest brother, who is a good brother, represents the Pharisees and the religious people. So the youngest brother represents the tax collectors and sinners, and the oldest brother, which was a good brother, represents the religious crowd. And Jesus is redefining what sin is. Jesus is actually saying this. Jesus is saying, I'm going to break it down even further. Jesus is saying there's two groups of people who try to connect with God. There are two groups of people who are always trying to connect with God and change the world. You know, that's what people are trying to do nowadays. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, your goal is to change the politics of America so America could be a better place to live. As Christians, we want a better community. We want a better world for our children to live in. We want to connect with God and connect to the world. And Jesus is saying here, Jesus is saying here, there's two ways you can do that. You can do it by self-discovery, or you can do it by moral conformity. You see, moral conformity is the person who says, I am good, and I have done everything on the checklist. I go to church, I pray, I read the Bible... I sing my songs and I fast once a week. That is what we call moral conformity and that is the Pharisees. The Pharisees would fast twice a week. The Pharisees would give their alms to the poor. The Pharisees would the Pharisees would participate in religious practices and rituals. They were very good and they were very moral. They were very good and they were very moral. But my friends, you cannot be saved by moral conformity. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how many good works you do. It doesn't matter how much you go to church or how much you try to do good things. You cannot save yourself. And I've heard people say, boy, they were a good person. They probably made it to heaven. Good works don't make you go to heaven. I'm going to say it again. Good people don't go to heaven. Saved people go to heaven. And you could be good all your life, you could be good and sweet and do everything so nice, but that doesn't mean you're saved and that doesn't mean you'll go to heaven because that's not what the gospel says. And the Pharisees, the religious people, were very moral. But what about the people who were self-discovery? The self-discovery people are the younger brother. The younger brother is the self-discovery. And that group of people is this. I'll live my life the way I want to live my life. And I want to go out and spend it. And I want to do what I want to do. I want to find who I am. I want to discover who I am. And ladies and gentlemen, that is the battle that's going on in the world today. People don't know who they are because they want to discover who by themselves. They want to find out who they are by themselves. And there are two groups of people in the world. Those who are moral conformists, they will try to live a holy life. They will try to do good. They have the attitude of the Pharisees and religious leaders, or then you have the people who are the younger brother who are self discovery and they do whatever they want to do because they want to find themselves. And I'm telling you that if you are a person who is a moral conformist, or if you are a person who is trying to discover yourself, you will never connect with God, nor can you ever change the world by doing that way. And I'm going to break it, break it, break it, break it down for you. It is not moral people that go to heaven. It is not good people that go to heaven. It is the humble that is in and the pride that is out. He accepts those who are humble. Humble yourself before the Lord, and the Lord will exalt you in due time. It is when we come to the Lord with a broken heart and a contrite heart and saying, God, my good works will never save me. My tithing record will never save me. My church attendance will never save me. My good works is not enough. It is only you that will save me in the end. People who are self-discovery, trying to find themselves as the younger brother. They're both wrong. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not moralism, and it's not a religion. Early Christianity was called atheist. Do you know why they were called atheist? Because they rejected the gods of Rome. The early Christians was not viewed as a religion because the Christianity was a different type of movement than any other movement that's ever occurred in Rome. And so the Roman, the Roman people referred to the Christians as atheists because they rejected the gods of Rome because Christianity was different. It was more than just a religion. It was more than just a movement. It was a way of life. And I'm going to say this and say it loud and clear. If your Christianity hasn't affected your pocketbook and your Christianity hasn't affected your marriage and your Christianity hasn't affected how you raise your children and your church attendance and how you treat your spouse and how you treat your children and how you treat the the, the officer on the street and how you treat the Democrat and the Republican, I'm not even sure if you're saved or not. You say, well, pastor, you're preaching real strong. No, I believe the Bible. And the Bible says that if you are a new creature, old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. That great preacher, James Kennedy, the great Presbyterian preacher who pastored in Florida for many years, he said in his book, and I quote, I'm convinced. That the longer that I pastor in America and churches, I have discovered that the problem is not discipleship. The problem is conversion. I'm trying to disciple people and have people to come to church that's not even saved. And that is why Jesus said on the last day, many people say, Lord, Lord, have I not done good? I've cast out demons. I've I've raised the dead. I've done good works. And Jesus will say, depart from me. I've never knew you. I'm telling you, listen to this preacher today. I'm telling you the gospel of Jesus Christ is more than doing good works. The gospel changes you. If you're still treating people the same way you treated them last year and there's no growth in your finances and you're not giving and you're not praying, you're not reading the Word and you're not witnessing, you need to come to this altar this morning and say, God, revive me and bring me back to the place where I once was. I look around this audience and I see people who have decreased in their attendance, decreased in their love, decreased in And we can make all excuses in the world, folks. Church attendance doesn't save you. I understand that. But there should be a longing to be in God's house. Four hours on Sunday is not going to hurt anybody when you spend 166 hours in the world. I know you're not amen me this morning, and your vote is not going to call me and your vote's not going to disqualify if i me. I'm going to stand up here with a microphone and preach without favor and without fear and declare, thus says the Lord, and go back to my seat and sit down whether you like it or not. I'm telling you today, you could, we we got we, we to grow up. we got to start practicing spiritual disciplines. We've got to get back to where we used to be. That's where the prophet said, alas, master, What happened to the axe head? And he took the prophet by the hand and said, it's right there. That's exactly where I've lost the axe head. And some of us need to go and take the prophet by the hand, take the Holy Spirit by the hand, and go back to the river and say, that's where I lost it. That's where I lost my prayer life. That's where I started looking at porn. That's where I started lying. That's where I started cheating. That's where I started to have my heart to turn bitter and cold towards people and the church. I need to get back to the altar. Is there anybody up in here that can help me preach a little bit? Jesus redefines sin. It's either about being a moral conformist, trying to do all good works, or self-discovery. What about it? Jesus said, neither is going to save you in the end. Neither is going to save you. It's the humble that's in and the pride that's out. Jesus redefines the Father. He redefines sin. Jesus redefines salvation. He redefines salvation. Jesus is saying it's not about good and it's not about bad. The gospel is offensive to those people who are moral. Some of the most moral people are offended by the gospel. And some of you will probably be offended by me this morning. But the Bible says, Jesus said, I did not come to bring a sword. I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring the sword. And the mother will be against the father. And a father will be against his children. Because Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And my message will divide families. Everything Jesus preached was radical. Jesus didn't come to soothe our wound licking fest. He's not coming to our wound-licking fest party. Jesus is not here to tell you how good you are. Jesus is here to tell you that if you don't repent of your sin, you will die and you will go to hell. Jesus is saying that you don't have to go to hell. You can repent of it, come to the altar, repent, and receive eternal life for your salvation. Jesus died upon the cross. That cross that's over there, he died upon the cross for your goodness because he knew you would never be good. No matter how hard you try to be good, you will never be good. No matter how hard you try to tell yourself, I won't watch it again. I won't say it again. I won't do it again. He knows you'll do it again. You see, salvation is not turning over new relief. Salvation is not saying, I'll never do that again. Salvation is not hitting your, stop it. Don't do it again. Don't say it again. Don't look at it again. Jesus knows you'll do it again. That's why you will fail every time in your good works. You are not good. The Bible says there is not one that's good. People say, I don't understand why why good things happen to bad people because you are not looking at the Bible right. You're not good. There is nobody that's good. And when you come to a place and you realize that you are not good in yourself, you've never been good, and your good works will never save you, that is when Jesus can reach down his merciful hand and save you from the uttermost. And the reason that people don't flock the altars anymore is because we don't think we've done anything wrong. You think you're good. And Jesus stands up in the middle of dinner, and he's looking at the Pharisees, and he's looking at the tax collectors and sinners, and he says, Let me tell you a story of two sons. The oldest son is a good son, just like you religious people are. The youngest son spent everything he had, just like you tax collectors and sinners. Let me tell you that neither one of you will ever be saved unless your motivation is correct. Because each of those sons wanted something from their father, but they never wanted the father. Each of the son, the youngest son wanted his inheritance and the oldest son wanted a party like his younger brother. They both wanted something from the father, but they didn't want the father himself. Can I hear an amen? Religious people obey God to get something from God, but gospel people obey God to get God. You see, the religious people... We're doing things to get something from God. The Pharisees were doing these acts of religiosity to get something from God. The eldest brother was good, and he thought his goodness should have allowed him to have a calf slate. And let me tell you something. You know what damned the eldest brother? It wasn't his sin because he didn't have a sin list. It was his goodness goodness that kept him from the father says goodness I, I don't have I don't have a, a list I've always obeyed your commandments father it was his goodness listen where was the where was the son at the son was standing outside of of the party. And the father had to walk out to talk to his son. What separated the oldest son from his father? Why didn't he go into the party? It was his goodness that separated him from his brother and his father. And many of you will miss out in life and miss the blessing of God because you think your goodness is good enough. I'm not going into the party. They don't deserve my presence. I'm good. He's bad. How many times have we said, I'm not going to talk to her? I'm not going to talk to him. You're drowning in your own damnation. Your goodness and damn your soul to hell. I'm not going in there. Father, I've never done anything wrong. You don't deserve my presence in there. I'm never going to walk in there and stand in there with that lousy brother of mine. Let me tell you something. I am just as sinful as you are, and you're sinful as I am. We're just one beggar telling another beggar where the bread's at. All of us is in this thing together, and nobody has the right to think our goodness is good enough. And what happens in the story? We need to realize the love of the Father, that there is hope. You know what happens? The Father goes out to both of the sons, The Bible says in verse number 20, look at it. The Bible says, Luke 15, verse 20, in closing, I'm going to say this and I'm going to shut up. Verse number 20, he says this, and he arose and came to his father, and when he was still a great far off, his father saw him, had compassion, fell on his neck, and kissed him. Listen, the father kissed him. The kiss triggered the forgiveness, the kiss triggered the repentance. It was the Father seeking the Son, not the Son seeking the Father. And you cannot be saved unless the Spirit draws you. And there are some of us, listen, you can't be saved. I'll get saved when I want. No, you can't get saved when you want to. Unless the Spirit draws you, you cannot get saved. And so that's why when the Spirit draws you, you need to respond to the Spirit when the Spirit's drawing you. And the Father right here pursued the Son, kissed Him, and then the Son repented. It was the kiss that triggered the repentance. What about the other son? The Bible says in verse number 28, the father, verse 28, went out. He was angry. He wouldn't go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. In both cases, in both sons, the father went to the son. The father went to the son. The father left the party and went to the oldest son, and the father went to the youngest son and kissed him. The father pursued both sons. And Jesus is saying in salvation, it is not you that chooses him, he chooses you. He seeks you out. And as we close here, we got to see that he refines salvation. What do I mean by that? Sometimes you got to repent for something more than sins. And that's a mouthful. Sometimes you have to repent for more than your sins. What do you mean, Pastor? Some of us have to learn to repent for the reason why you did good things. It's not about your checklist. The oldest son said, Father, I've never sinned. Most of us, when we pray, we have our checklist of sins. And Jesus is saying, I'm trying to redefine this and tell you it's just not about a checklist of sins. Sometimes you've got to repent for the reason why you did good things. Why did the eldest son keep the father's commandments? Was it because he wanted something from the father? Or was he really in the relationship with the father because he loved the father? The question is: is sometimes we gotta repent. For more than just sins, we got to repent for why we do good things. What is the reason that we do good things? Is it to get something from the Father, or do you want the Father himself? This is the story. The prodigal son, but not just the prodigal son. The prodigal sons. They were both. It's interesting. In the end, it was the bad son that got right and the good son that was lost. In the end, the good person was lost. The bad son became right because Jesus is trying to redefine how you look at God Redefine how you look at salvation. Redefine how you look at sin. Sin is not about a checklist any longer. It is a checklist. There are sins. It's more than that. Sometimes you've got to check the motivation of why you do what is right. And sometimes your own goodness causes you to stand outside of the house and makes you not go in the house and celebrate. Sometimes it's your goodness that separates you from the presence of God, not just your sin. Amen.